Right, good morning. So I get the joy again of ministering God's word to you this morning, so very happy for that. If you're here last week, we were in Isaiah 61, and we saw kind of a big picture, you know, of what the ministry of the Messiah would look like. And it was actually Isaiah 61, it was that passage that Jesus used to define his ministry. And so today we're, we're going to zoom in to a particular story where we see Isaiah 61 played out. We see Isaiah 61 in action. And here in this passage we just read, there's actually there's two stories that are happening that are somewhat connected, as we'll see. There's a story of two females, both in need of help. Now this morning we're going to zoom in on the story within the story, the story of the bleeding woman. Now, as we do that, we're going to kind of break this sermon into two parts. The first part will be about the woman. We're going to talk about the woman's condition and what is going on in her life. And the second part is the Savior's surprising response. Okay, so those two parts will kind of give us the categories to think about this passage. So first of all, the woman's condition. Who is this woman? We really, we don't know much, do we? We don't even know her name. What we do know about her is she is sick, and she has been sick for a long time. We're told that she was subject to bleeding for 12 years. Some translations say that she had a discharge of blood. The assumption is that there was a, a chronic hemorrhaging of the womb, uh, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that it was a persistent physical issue for her. Loss of blood, no doubt, caused physical weakness and may have even left her susceptible to other diseases or sicknesses. The fact that she was bleeding rendered her ceremonially unclean. She could not mingle with others. She could not go to the women's court in the temple to worship. She could not marry if she were married, her husband could not be near to her unless he too be defiled. So it could be that she was divorced. If she had kids, that her kids too would be prevented from getting near to her. She was probably the subject of a lot of gossip. People probably speculated about how this condition came about. You know, was it something that she did? Was she in sin? Was God punishing her? You know how people are. This woman was an outcast. This woman's life was one of isolation. This is a woman who knew the experience of shame. What about you? Do you know shame? I would venture to say that you do. I'll give you a definition one author by the name of Ed Welch, this is a helpful orienting definition here about shame. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Or to strengthen the language, he says, you are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated less than human. You were associated with things that were less than human, and there were witnesses. 
One author describes shame as a traumatic exposure of nakedness. Now, with shame, there's kind of a triad, if you will. There's three concepts that capture the experience of shame. That is, being an outcast, being naked, and being dirty. So, do you, do you know shame? Am I getting a little closer? Well, let me give you some more words that might express the idea of shame. Inferior, alienated, embarrassed, minority, ridiculed, weak, powerless, failure, different, insulted, rejected, inadequate, humiliated, ignored, loser, unclean, dishonored, filthy, shunned, disgusted, defiled, exposed, unlovable, discarded, repulsive, disgraced, loathed, scorned, vile. So have I captured all of you yet? Do you know shame? Yeah. So why am I, why am I belaboring this point? Why am I spending so much time here? I want you to find yourself in this story. Because if you don't, you're going to miss it. It's easy to read about a story of a bleeding woman 2,000 years ago and dismiss it. I want you to see behind the bleeding to a deeper issue, an issue that touches us all. I want you to see that we are more alike then we are different. We are more like this bleeding woman than we dare realize. So this is a woman who knows shame well. Now, people go to great lengths to get rid of shame, right? This woman was no different. We're told that she suffered at the hands of others as she sought to find a cure. She wanted to be well. You know, she spent all that she had but nothing worked. In fact, things got worse for her. The doctors could do nothing. It was an incurable disease. She experienced empty promises. She may have even been taken advantage of in the process. She sought out the people who were supposed to help, but she was left unchanged. Do you know that experience? Nothing seemed to alleviate her from her sickness or her shame. Donald Nathison, who is an American psychiatrist, he wrote extensively on the issue of shame, and he, he talks about what he calls the compass of shame. If you can imagine a compass, there's four points to it. And he says, when we experience shame, we often respond in one of four different ways. One way we often respond is by withdrawal. We just, we, we move back, we, we, we run, we hide, we isolate ourselves, we disengage from relationships. We maybe even sabotage relationships because they're too risky. Or number two, we avoid. That is, we just live in denial. We live a lie. Maybe we check out or escape through drugs or alcohol or pornography. A third way is we attack other people. 
When we experience shame, we, we, maybe we lash out verbally or physically to others. We, we blame other people for that experience. Or maybe the fourth one is we attack ourselves. We experience self-hatred. We put ourselves down. Maybe even we hurt ourselves physically by cutting or burning ourselves. Maybe even it could be expressed in the way we eat, the things we eat. We put a lot of effort into getting rid of shame, don't we? It's a very powerful and persuasive emotion. Well, this woman had heard about Jesus. Now, we don't know what she heard, but she heard enough to seek him out. So what's her plan? She's got some obvious challenges, right? She is a woman living in a man's world, and she is unclean. That means she can't mingle with the crowd without defiling them. So what does she do? Well, she does something surprising. She broke all the cultural norms. She went against the the ritual laws of purification. She was bold in one sense. Yet in another sense, she was fearful. You know, she didn't come and call out to Jesus like others had done. She didn't put herself in front of him and ask for healing. She didn't seek out one of the disciples and ask if she could get a minute with Jesus. No, she came in secret. Her faith at best was imperfect. She assumed that all she needed was to touch him. It was as, as if Jesus were maybe a magical genie. If she could just get close to Jesus and touch him. And that was not an uncommon belief in those days. Holy men were often thought to carry special power. And if you just touched them or something that touched them, you could be healed. So that's what she was thinking probably. And it's, it's not that she didn't believe Jesus could heal her. It's that she didn't believe that Jesus could do more. And that leads us to the second part. That is the Savior's surprising response. Jesus is coming through town and he's approached by a man named Jairus, right? He's an important man. He's a leader of the synagogue. And he pleads to Jesus to come heal his daughter. Jesus agrees and he's on his way there when the woman sneaks in and touches his robe. Now, you can imagine the scene. You know, Jesus is on his way with this important man, crowd all around him, pushing up against him. The disciples probably making the way through the crowd, clearing a path for Jesus to get there. This is emergency ministry kind of stuff. And then we're told that she touched him. And as soon as she touched him, she could feel that she had been healed. And there are a few surprising things we should notice here. One, Jesus felt power go out of him. He asked, who touched me? Who touched me? Now, his disciples thought that was a pretty odd question to ask, right? He's he's getting bumped and pushed as he's making his way through this crowd. Jesus, why do you ask who touched you? Who isn't touching you right now? Everybody's pushing up against you. But Jesus knew Jesus knew. Let me say something about touch in the Gospels. Not just, you know, just random accidental touch like being in a crowd, but, but intentional 
meaningful touch in the Gospels. When you look at that, you see something very interesting. When you read about the people Jesus touched or the people who touched him, it's quite surprising. In almost every case, it's someone that you would not expect. You have Peter's sick mother-in-law, two blind men, a deaf and a mute man, lepers, a crippled man, a sinful woman who uh, most people assume was a prostitute, a disciple who was doubting the resurrection of Jesus, a sick little girl, and a bleeding woman. These were sick, needy, dirty, outcast kind of people, right? The people that you wouldn't expect Jesus to be close to are the ones who got the most access to him. So you see Isaiah 61 echoing here in this passage. He touched them, or they touched him. Now, for some of you, perhaps the idea of touch has been perverted. You have been touched in ways that were meant for your harm and not your good. Maybe physically, sexually, in ways that have assaulted your dignity to its core. And I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. This is what I love about Jesus. This is what I love about Jesus here. He takes the things that the world has twisted and broken, and he remakes them, and he restores them to their proper use. He rebukes the power of darkness and says, no, you cannot have this. I will redeem it. I will redeem it. Are you with me? You okay? Don't check out on me, okay? Stay with me. It's the second surprising thing that happened here in this text. What do we know about the Old Testament law and unclean things? Well, the pattern that we see in Scripture is that the unclean always defiles the clean. In other words, when an unclean person touched a clean person, the clean person always walked away defiled. The unclean thing always won. It always dominated. It always spread its contamination. That's why unclean people were kept at a distance. But what happened here? What happened? The unclean touched the clean and met its match. The dirty thing became clean. This is a very powerful message. This exchange captures the entire ministry of Jesus. His entire ministry involved taking the shame from others and heaping it upon himself. Jesus was not afraid to enter into the mess and the chaos of other people. He was willing to be contaminated in order to make others holy. 
And you see this, it culminates on the cross where he took the sin and the shame of the whole world upon his shoulders and he took it to his grave. He took the woman's badness and he gave her his goodness. The third surprising thing is, is what Jesus did. And what he didn't do is he, he didn't recoil or cringe knowing that an unclean woman had just touched him. He didn't get angry at her. He didn't ask for a new robe. He didn't pretend it didn't happen and, and just keep walking. He wasn't bothered by this interruption. He noticed her, actually. Right? He looked for her. He sought her out with a question. Who touched me? Who touched me? God so often engages us with a question. You see this all throughout Scripture, starting even in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. Adam, where are you? It's not that God didn't know. Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Elijah, what are you doing in this cave? Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? Peter, do you love me? Asking questions is it's a sign of humility. It's the invitation to join a conversation. It is the invitation to relationship. So Jesus calls her out and he invites her to respond. And I wonder... I wonder what she was thinking. Would she be ridiculed by the others or reprimanded by the disciples? Would she be condemned for bringing her defilement into the crowd? It wasn't proper for men to do the things that this woman had done. She came into the crowd in her condition and she touched a holy man. Who does this woman think she is? Well, the text tells us that she came to Jesus in fear and trembling. She fell down before him. And the text says that she told him the whole truth. She shared her story. She gave voice to her shame. Now everything had come into the light. How would Jesus respond now? Some of you may wonder what it would be like to, to be brought into the light and to put words to your shame. You might fear the consequences or even wonder if it's worth it. Well, Jesus knows everything about this woman and he loves her. Let me say that again. Jesus knows everything about this woman, and he loves her. That goes against our, our usual logic, doesn't it? Most of us operate on a belief that if people really knew us, they wouldn't love us. And in some situations, that might be true. But Jesus is different. Hopefully by now, you're starting to see that. 
I love the words from a song by Ellie Holcomb. She asked the question you know, as if she's talking to God. She says, what if, what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded the shame and self-hatred for a chance at believing you? It's one of those things when Jesus becomes the focal point of your life, what he says about you becomes more important than what others say about you. It becomes more important than what you say about yourself. Now look at what Jesus says to this woman. This is where it gets really good. It says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Another translation says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus' acknowledgement of her honored her. It was a testimony to those around her. This woman was now clean. You see, this woman, she needed more than just physical healing. She needed to be restored relationally. For some of you, you believe that if you could just get rid of your shame or the experience of shame, you would be happy. But shame isn't dealt with that way, is it? Shame is not something that simply vanishes. It seems to lurk in every corner of our lives. It's part of the human experience, living in a broken world. The problem of shame is that it often has fragments of truth embedded into it. There are things that we do that are shameful. There are things that are done to us that are shameful. There are things that we associate with that are shameful. Shame is an emotion that must be heard honestly and opposed appropriately. It needs to be heard honestly and opposed appropriately. What I mean by that is there are times, there are times when we must listen to our shame and repent and receive the forgiveness and healing of Christ. There are times when we sin. Sin brings shame, and that shame is to drive us to Christ where we receive his forgiveness. He restores us. But then there are times when we must rebuke our shame and fight against that because it's preaching lies to us. Because shame is so powerful, it's easily believed. It can grow like a parasite. It becomes an authority in our lives. It begins to define who we are. Its voice becomes louder and louder, and it overrides the truth of God's word. That's when it must be opposed. How do you do that? Well, you need a louder voice. You need another authority. You need a new identity. Luke tells us this woman sought her healing in secret. 
But Jesus doesn't let her get away with that. All she wants is healing, but Jesus wants to give her more. She wants relief, and he gives her relationship. She wants freedom from shame, and he gives her honor. She wanted to slip in and slip out, but he brings her into the light. <laughs> Isn't that just like Jesus, though? He's always giving us more than what we ask for. He knows what we need. Look at the language he uses. He calls her daughter. Daughter. Now, Mark seems to draw parallels between this woman and Jairus' daughter. Both of them are sick and in need of divine intervention. He tells us that this woman has been sick for 12 years. And later in the passage, he tells us that Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. At the beginning of the story, this little girl is identified as a daughter, a daughter who has a dad who loves her and is seeking her good. All eyes are on this daughter. But the woman is alone. She's an outcast, suffering at the hands of others. It appears that she has no father who cares. But Jesus' words tell us otherwise. She does have a dad who loves her and is seeking her good. A father whose love is, to use the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones, whose love is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Jesus' words are powerful and humanizing. They counteract the voice of shame. He's offering her another authority. He is offering her a new identity. He's speaking to her shame. He says, your faith has made you well, or your faith has healed you. Now, each time these words are spoken in the Gospels, they are said to someone that you wouldn't expect. In Luke 17, Jesus says these words to a leper. In Luke 18, it's a blind beggar. In Luke chapter 7, it's a prostitute. And here in Mark 5, it is a bleeding woman. Now, the word he uses for this healing is a word that can mean to preserve or to rescue, to save from death or to keep alive. At times, it's used for spiritual salvation, which is also linked to a person's faith. So I believe there is more going on here in this story than what we see. I believe salvation has come to this woman. She has been saved. And he tells her, go in peace. Be healed from your disease. Or in another translation, be freed from your suffering. He assures her of her healing. He's not taking it away from her. He gives her this, this benediction of blessing. Go in peace. Your suffering does not have the last word. 
Go and be freed from its poison. So the woman walks away in peace. She walks away with more than what she came for. So what do we do with this? What do we take away from this bleeding woman? Two very important elements here that brought the healing to this woman's life. Two very important things. One is faith. The second is Jesus. Both are necessary. One without the other is useless. Right? You can think wonderful things about Jesus. You might even have high opinions of Jesus, or you might even believe what the Bible says about him, but it is of no use unless it's united with faith. The Jesus of the Bible calls us to repent and to believe, to turn from living life our own way, and to trust him, to listen to his voice. Now, you may have amazing faith, but that faith can be in all the wrong things. Maybe you talk a lot about Jesus, but in reality, your faith is in your own efforts, or maybe your own logic, or maybe in the efforts and logic of others. And there are, there are thousands of things each day that call for your trust. Every day you're tempted to put your trust in the things that make promises to you. Faith in the wrong thing is deceptive faith. Vague faith is futile faith. Saving faith is personal faith. It is faith in Jesus. It is trusting that he can bear your sin and your shame. It is believing his voice. It is accepting his authority. And it is living in the new identity that he offers. It's putting all your hope in him. So, who is this bleeding woman in Mark chapter 5? You are. I am. Many of you are living in the shadow of shame. And you know, shame has its distinctive voice made up of the evil ones, made up of others, and made up of your own as well. And these voices, they, they come together and they work in unison for your harm. Faith helps you hear the voice of Jesus. Faith draws you near to him. Faith emboldens you to reach out and to touch him. Will you? Will you allow yourself to be surprised by Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we ask now for you to send your spirit to take these words and make them alive. Alive in the hearts of your people. Alive in the hearts of every person in this room. 
Now the voice of shame is loud and convincing and seems to dominate the room. So Father, we ask that the voice of your son will become louder and louder and the clarity of that voice will become more and more. God, retune our ears so that we could hear the voice of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.